Well, good morning and welcome to Redemption Community Church this morning. And a warm felt greetings to our guests who are gathered with us today for worship. I'm glad to have you here. Uh, before I begin preaching this morning, I just want to issue a heartfelt thank you to the elders of Redemption for allowing me this opportunity to preach this morning. Uh, for, I especially want to thank Pastor Nathan for taking the time to meet with me uh, to develop this sermon and help me with sermon prep, as it's not something I've ever really had to do before. So, uh, For years, I have desired to preach. Uh, I felt since a young age, at some point, the Lord calling me to ministry, so we shall see what happens today. Uh, but for me, this is a special Sunday, again, being able to preach, but also this Sunday marks the third anniversary of me uh, beginning to attend Redemption Community Church. And so I can think of no better way to praise God for him guiding and bringing me here to redemption than to be able to preach to you from his word this morning. Uh, a few weeks ago, Pastor Nathan texted me one Sunday night around 9 p.m., uh, and he asked me if he could call me. I was a bit worried because it was late in the evening, so my immediate fear was something was going on with the church that I wasn't aware about or some great catastrophe had happened. Uh, but as soon as I got on the phone with him, that fear immediately subsided only to immediately come rushing back upon asking me one simple question. He told me, Elijah, the elders and I have been talking uh, and we believe that you are ready to preach a sermon. He then asked me if I would be willing to do so. My immediate first response was yes, but the quaking in my voice said something else. Um, but as soon as he let me know in regards to preaching that I could preach on anything I wanted to, uh, Psalms 43 was the first psalm that originally came to my mind. Uh, but as we will see later on, after studying this passage, I realized that I actually need to preach on Psalms 42, as you will soon come to find out why. Uh, there are a few reasons why I chose this passage to preach on today. The end of the year is quickly coming upon us, and I don't know about you, uh, but for me personally, I like to, usually around Thanksgiving, um, take a collection, basically, of everything that's gone on throughout my year. Uh, and I like to see what the Lord has gone through it and see where he's taken me and what he's done. Through this time, I remember the good times that he's brought me through, but I also remember the bad times and the trials that he has allowed me to go through. I know that I'm not the only one the Lord has allowed to endure trials this year. I look at the body gathered, gathered here today and know what many have gone through this year. Some here have been dealing with bodily ailments. Others have loved ones that are going through trying ailments as well. Some have friends and family who have left this world for another. We also have some who appear to be stepping away from the church and more so scarily the faith in general. I also look and see friends that I know, like myself, who have dealt heavily with things like depression, both mentally and spiritually. For redemption, we have also lost one beloved elder and his family. And we are shortly here about to lose another beloved elder and his family. Though it is hard to say goodbye, we know that God has called them away according to his will and his purposes. But even then, it's still hard to say goodbye to those we have come to know, love, and serve alongside with. It seems that every time you look at the news, you open social media, you read an article, everything in the world just seems off. Nothing seems to be going good. And it hurts that when you see everything happening to just know that everything will probably be getting worse. It is because of trials like these and many more that I chose to preach on Psalms 42 this morning. 
I wanted us to remember that even though for some of us, this has been a great year, for many of us, this has been a year filled with hurt and trials and heartache, whether within or outside the church body. Ultimately, this is what I want us to see this morning through this sermon, that during this time of Advent, that even through these trials we go through, we worship a great and powerful God, a God who is merciful, who is always ready to hear our cries to him throughout the good and the bad times, a God who in his sovereignty allows us to go through periods of great suffering to produce in us a great sanctification, a great love for him, and a greater satisfaction and joy in him. My goal today is not to burden you with remembrance of your trials, but to encourage and to extol you to wholly depend on God through them so that in the end, your love and sanctification and satisfaction in the Lord will be greater than what it once was. So that when you're in a time of peace and trials seem to come out of nowhere, you can know that all you need to do is hold firm to Christ, his word, and he will lead you through this period of affliction that he's allowing you to go through. With that being said, let us turn our Bibles this morning to Psalms 42 to begin the reading this morning. So again, Psalm 42. And that passage reads, To the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah. Verse 1, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. Will they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You may have noticed as you were turning to Psalm 42 this morning uh, that right before the chapter uh, listed, depending on what translation of the Bible you're using and how they print it, you may notice that right above the chapter you see something that says Book 2. Uh, so you can see that right now we're currently in Book 2 of the Psalms. Uh, book 1 contains Psalms 1 through 41. Book 2 contains books 42 through 72, or more importantly, chapters. My apologies. In total, there are five different books or sections throughout the entirety of the Psalms, each ending with a different doxology or song of praise to our Lord. The reasoning for these five different books or sections is not quite certain, uh, but many speculate and think this is due to the five books being uh, to somewhat resemble the Torah. Uh, the Torah first being the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, others speculate that they are split into five different books or sections 
uh, based off of when the different authors wrote the Psalms, therefore trying to follow some sort of chronological order. Uh, another theory is that it's based off of when different Psalms were brought into the praise of the people of Israel. If you're using an ESV translation of the Bible, you may notice that the title of this particular psalm is, Why Are You Cast Down, O My Soul? Considering the content of this psalm after reading and studying it, I cannot think of a better, more fitting title. More so, you may notice underneath the title a small note saying, which was read earlier, To the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah. For now, this is what I want us to focus on, just to give us a bit of context. Um, you may be asking yourself, what is a maskil? Um, who are the sons of Korah, and what do they have to do with me? If you're not wondering that, well, congratulations. We're going to go over it anyway. So, First, I want us to try to see what a maskil is. Notice I'm saying try. There's reasoning behind that. Um, the reason is because there's no definite way to truly define what a maskil is. We cannot truly define what a maskil is because we do not actually know what the word maskil means in the Hebrew language. Uh, it remains obscure to us. What we can do, though, are make educated guesses on the definition of what the word may mean in English based off of the biblical text. Simply put, we can do our best to transliterate the word into the English language. Most theologians and scholars agree that an English definition of the word maskil could be an insightful poem, a poem of instruction, or since this being a psalm, an instructive or insightful psalm. Most come to agree on this because any other time we see the word maskil in the Bible, it is always associated with the Psalms. More accurately, it is only seen associated with 13 specific Psalms, uh, some of those being 32, 42, 54, 55, and 142. Uh, if you would like a full list of the 13 maskil, I can give you those after the sermon. Now, the reason behind there uh, being only 13 maskil in the entirety of the canon of Scripture is also still somewhat in question. Many propose the idea that it's because these particular psalms have a difference in writing and grammar structure, uh, or others propose the idea that they simply seem a lot more instructive than the rest of the psalms uh, within the canon of scripture. Uh, but again, these are only speculations. Uh, since the original authors passed away thousands of years ago, we can only speculate as to what a maskil is. Uh, but for purposes today, we will say that a maskil is an instructive psalm. Now that uh, we have done our best to describe or more accurately transliterate what a maskil is, I want us to secondly see who the sons of maskil are. Remember to the choir master a maskil of the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah were a distinguished family within the Jewish priesthood who were tasked with leading the people in worship through music, specifically in leading the people in lifting their voices or singing. They also had other priestly duties that we can see listed in 1 Chronicles 9.19. Uh, note this is also the first point where we actually see the sons of Korah mentioned within the canon of Scripture. And that passage reads, Shalom, son of Kor, son of Abiasaph, son of Korah, and his kinsmen of his father's house, the Korahites, were in charge of the work of the service, keepers of the thresholds of the tent, as their fathers had been in charge of the camp of the Lord keepers of the entrance. So just within that short passage, we can see some of the other duties that the Korahites would perform. Um, they were keepers of the threshold, keepers of the entrance, as well as workers of service. The Korahites are then later also referenced in 2 Chronicles 20, 18 through 19. 
This passage is where we actually begin to see them leading others in worship. That passage reads, The Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites and the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Now, after observing these two passages, as well as what we saw in Psalms 42, uh, we can begin to see that the author of the psalm, being a Korahite or son of Korah, is more than likely well associated with singing, worshiping, and leading others in worship. But while we see these wonderful things of worship, we also see from Psalm 42 that the author is one who is dealing with heavy affliction. He is a burdened saint who is crying out to the Lord during this time of affliction. He is thirsting and hungering after God. We, like the author, should hunger and thirst after God, especially amidst affliction. But how do we do that? Well, let us move on to the first point this morning to see how. The first point of this sermon is hungering after God through trials. Hungering after God through trials. When the author starts this passage, we can immediately see that his desire is for God. Just look again at verses 1 through 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? I want you to notice the type of language that the author is using here. He uses the words thirst and pants to describe his desire for God. When the author uses the word pants, it is being used in the same way that the word desire is used in Isaiah 26, 8 through 9. That passage reading, In the paths of your judgment, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. So we can see that the author of the psalm is not using this term of desire lightly by any means. He is not at all being frivolous with his words, just throwing darts, hoping one of them will stick. There is sure intentionality behind everything he is saying and writing. This wording shows and suggests an ever-growing thirst that can only be satiated by the living God. Just like the deer and all the rest of creation needs water to survive, that's why we crave it, because we physically need it to live, that's how God made us, so too do the children of God hungrily desire after him because we know he is the only one who provides the life that we desperately need. John 7.37 says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Just like the author states his desire for God, those who are children of God have also done the same. We have thirsted after him and the life he provides. We have been satiated and satisfied. The author then asks the question, though, When shall I come and appear before God? When shall I come and appear before God? He desires not only to see God, but to be seen by God, to praise the Lord's name in the Lord's presence. His desire is for God, and his desire is leading him to praise God. I pray that all of you gathered here today have that desire. If you have drank of Christ, I pray that you desire to praise the Lord. I pray that you actively hunger and thirst after him, only being satisfied after praying and feasting upon the word he has so lovingly provided us. If you claim to be of Christ, but you don't have this desire, this thirst, 
then it's time to ask yourself why. Are there hidden sins in your life or are there things in this world that you are thirsting after that you are idolizing more than the only one who satisfies? Are you seeking comfort in what will only last for a mere moment rather than finding comfort in the only one who is truly eternal? I pray that's not the case for us here today. I pray it's not by any means. Notice though, the author goes from stating his hunger, his desire for God and desire to be in God's presence into talking about how his tears have been his food day and night. Look with me in verse three. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? So we see now just some of the afflictions slightly that the author is dealing with. He is going from, God, I hunger for you. I desire you to immediately, my tears are worth sustaining me right now. What affliction is he dealing with to cause this to be simply on a diet of nothing more than salty tears? In many ways, I can empathize with the author here. There were many a day and night this past year where all I could do was cry. I could do nothing more than cry out to God asking him why. Why did you not allow this to work out? Why did you let this happen? Why would you open this door only to close it? Or why does it feel like you've forsaken me? Why do I pray to die, but you won't kill me? During these times, I would be in such despair and darkness that I would go through periods uh, for about one to two weeks, sometimes up to three weeks, where I just would not eat. I would just simply drink enough water to satiate the physical thirst and desires I had. I was just so depressed that all I could do was work, cry, pray, cry, and then try to sleep while slowly, completely enveloping my pillow in tears. Have you ever found yourself in a time like this? Where it seems that everything is against you and God is just watching as it happens? Where it seems like the walls of life are falling down all around you? If so, know there is hope, as we will soon see, and what a truly glorious hope it is. So this transition in writing brings up a question, though. Why are the author's tears becoming his food? Why are they now where satiating him rather than God? Well, in the later part of verse 3, it says, Well, they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Who are the they that the author is referring to? Well, if you look with me quickly to verse 9, you'll see the they that he is speaking about. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? So ultimately, right now, we can see that the author has enemies. And his enemies are jeering at him while he is down. They are taunting him during this time of affliction, asking, Where's your God at? I don't see him. I want you to notice something. The taunt that the adversaries brings up a notable fact. Even to the author's enemies, it seems that God has forsaken the author. They can observe that the author appears to be alone, and then they jest him for it. I want you to think about it this way. You're a child in the grocery store, and you're walking right beside one of your parents. Um, and as you're walking along, they're pushing the cart right beside you. Well, as you're going about doing your shopping, someone comes up to you and asks you, where's your parent? Where are they at? Well, seeing as they're right beside you, this question seems illogical for the person to ask. And why? Because your parent is with you. They are beside you. It is physically present that they are there, within there. 
But now I want you to imagine this. You, still as a child, are walking alone in the store, and the same person comes up and asks you the same question. Where is your parent? At this point, this question can be correctly and logically asked. Why? Because your parent's not there. There is no one who is there with you. You are alone, and it is completely observable. So knowing this, we can begin to piece together that the author is feeling and potentially feeling abandoned by God. This is some of why he is feeling afflicted, and his enemies are taunting him all the more about it. They laugh at his trials as he struggles on. They laugh at him as he deals with feeling abandoned. Even through this period, though, the author still reminds himself of God. Look with me to verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. So even while in the midst of trial, the author is still turning to seek the Lord. He is reminding himself of better, happier times when he would, being a son of Korah, actually help lead the people in procession and praises to the Lord as they would go to the temple. Notice the language he's using. Glad shouts and songs of praise and multitude-keeping festival. This language implies happiness and joy. It shows thanksgiving and celebration. The author was once joyous while praising the Lord. He's not joyous right now, but he's remembering these things all while pouring out his soul to God, all while pouring out over his anguish. It's not bad to ask God why. It's not bad to remember happier times if they help you to remember God and his goodness, especially when they lead you to remember that God is allowing you to go through this time so that through this time of difficulty, in the long run, as stated earlier, you will have a greater sanctification, love, satisfaction, and joy in him who is the only one who can truly satisfy the desires that we have. He is the only one we ought to ever thirst after, especially in the midst of trials. So again, like I asked earlier, are there things in your life that are keeping you from desiring Christ? Are there things that are keeping you from desiring to commune with him and be in his presence, worshiping him with his people? If so, what are they? Why are they causing you not to look to Christ? Have you ever considered just how worthless those things are in reference to God and his eternality? If not, do so. Look to Christ, cry out to the Lord to reveal what have become the idols in your life and then remove them. Because it is only when we lean upon and trust in Christ that we can even begin to face the trials that he will put us through. With this in mind, let us move on to point two this morning. Steadying ourselves upon God through trials. Steadying ourselves upon God through trials. Look with me at verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hoping God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation, part of verse 6, and my God. So just like I asked you to think about what is keeping you from looking to Christ, so too is the author doing. 
He is asking and looking within himself to find out why he is cast down, why he is in turmoil. And as he is doing this, he is telling and extolling himself to praise God, recognizing God as his salvation. He's still showing that his ultimate hope is found in God, just like we as children of God need to do. Yet, and you'll start to notice this throughout the passage, a lot of almost ping-ponging throughout everything, or flip-flopping as you would. Yet immediately after this, he goes right back into telling God he is amidst trials. Look with me to verse 6. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. The word within here in verse 6 is akin to that of Job 14.22 in regards to speaking about an inner pain. Uh, Job 14.22 says he feels only the pain in his own body and he mourns only for himself. This is showing us just how much the author is hurting during his trials. In Job, we are seeing a physical pain, but in verse 6 of 42, we are also more so seeing a type of spiritual pain. But yet, once again, the author is reminding himself of God and his goodness. Similarly, in Psalm 77, 6-11, it says, I said, let, le- let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and ever again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. Then I said, I will appeal to this to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. Even in the psalm, the author seems to be dealing with feelings of abandonment. Yet, just like our author in Psalm 42, they are still reminding themselves of the Lord's goodness. He's questioning, Lord, have you forgotten this? And he's saying, no, I shall remember you. Psalms like this often make me think of the classic song, I will bless the Lord at all times, where throughout the whole song, it's pretty much only one line repeating itself saying, I will bless the Lord at all times. He's good. More so, he's good. So good. And every day of my life, I bless the Lord, for he is good. I hope that you're actively doing that, where through all times, you are blessing the Lord, no matter your circumstance. Going back to Psalm 42, we see that the author is recognizing something else that is also very important to note. He is recognizing, as I've been saying earlier, that it is God who is allowing and putting him through this period of affliction. Look at verse seven with me. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Look at the wording the author is using here. Deep calls to deep. Roar of your waterfalls, breakers, waves. Do these words seem serene to you? Do they sound calming at all? When you hear them, do you think of a nice beach or mountain painting by Bob Ross? No. In fact, they do quite the opposite. They bring about an air of uneasiness and fear. 
To the author, everything he is going through feels like heavy waves and waterfalls that are trying to drown him in misery. He is feeling overwhelmed, and as he is feeling all these things, he is still recognizing that God is the one who is doing all this. It is God who is putting him through this time of affliction. And with this recognition, he goes into praising God. Look at verse 8 with me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. As he is being overwhelmed, as he is almost drowning, the author is feeling and receiving the love of God. The Lord does not allow just pain for the author. He offers him mercy as well. And with this, the author is praising the Lord. During her trials and feeling the true love of God, we who have been saved by Christ should, like the author, praise the Lord. When times are good, we praise the Lord. When times are bad, we praise him. At all times, we praise him. Why? Because he's the only one worth praising. He is the only one who is truly good. We have no right not to praise him. He is the one who created us and therefore has every right to put us through affliction and suffering for his glory, for his sake, for his will, for his purposes. I often during hard times find myself singing songs of worship to the Lord. A personal favorite of mine to sing besides I will bless the Lord at all times is how from a foundation. Specifically verses three and four of that beloved song. Verse 3 reading, when through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be with you your troubles to bless and sanctify to you your deepest distress. And then in verse 4, when through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you, I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. I've come to truly love this hymn more and more, uh, especially after taking time and studying it with Adam, as we have found out that the author of this hymn, we don't actually know who they are. It's kind of like this psalm. We don't truly know who the author is. We have an idea of being a son of Korah, but we can't put a precise name on it. Because of this, we can sing such songs like How From a Foundation. We can read such psalms as Psalms 42 and 43 with our own trials in mind. And we can praise God through them. When you're going through trials, do you find yourself singing praises as well? Do you take comfort in knowing that you're not the only one suffering, knowing that others have gone through similar trials and come out praising the Lord? I highly encourage you to begin doing so. Whenever I'm down... At times, I don't want to receive it, but it is a blessing to me anytime one of my family members or friends shares lyrics from a song that are always encouraging, songs that praise the Lord and lead me to remember the good deeds of him. Be like the psalmist here and praise God at all times, for he is good. Look with me to verses 9 and 10. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. Well, they say to me all the day long, where is your God? 
Like in verse 3, where we first see reference of the author's enemies, we again see them in verses 9 through 10. Notice this time, though, the author is the one now asking God why he has been forgotten. At first, we saw that it was his enemies who were the ones who were bringing up the fact that he appeared to be forgotten and forsaken. They were again bringing this up in jest against him. They were taunting him with this. But now the author himself is the one questioning this. But not only does he question being forgotten, but he questions why he is mourning. More accurately, why he is mourning because of the oppression of his enemies. Just look at the type of oppression he is facing. Look at the words he is using to describe it. The first part of verse 10 says, As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. Again, the author is not being light with his wording all, just throwing out darts, hoping they're sticking. There is intentionality behind it. They are not just empty words and phrases. He is comparing his oppression to being cut to the bone. That's a hard image to think about. He is being cut to his very innermost core, what makes up an essential part of his body so he can move. I don't know about you, but I've seen gnarly wounds online. Not a pretty sight. And this is what he is describing his oppression as, what he's dealing with. A similar way of wording is used in Psalms 35, 15, which says, But at my stumbling, they rejoiced. Even in this psalm, we can see that this particular author also seems to be dealing with affliction as well. They seem to have enemies. So again, but at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing. Charles Spurgeon in his Treasury of David had this to say about the cutting and taunting in verse 10. Cruel mockeries cut deeper than the flesh. They reach the soul as though a rapier were introduced between the ribs to prick the heart. If reproaches kill not, yet they are killing, the pain caused is excruciating. The tongue cuts hard to the bone and its wounds are hard to cure. I want you to notice something, that as the enemies taunt, they are not only taunting the author, but they are bringing into question God's faithfulness. How hard this must have been for the author to hear daily people questioning his Lord. Yet ultimately, the author turns this taunt into his plea. He cries out asking God why he's been forgotten by him. Yet he still, even in this, refers to God as his rock. He is still leaning and steadying himself upon the Lord during this time. And as he does so, he again questions himself and reminds himself of God's goodness. Look with me at verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation, and my God. Once again, like in verse 5, the author is bringing to remembrance God's goodness, even while dealing with his enemies and the inner turmoils of himself. And he is telling himself to hope in God, recognizing that God is his ultimate salvation. Recognizing that through everything he is going through, God is still worth praising. Can you do that? Can you, in the midst of your trials, praise God? 
If not, what is keeping you from that? What is keeping you from ascribing praise to where praise is due? I urge you, look at yourself and be brutally honest trying to find out why you are not praising him. Spend time in prayer and in your Bible begging God to reveal if there's anything hidden in your life, hidden sins or hidden idols. And again, if he reveals them, remove them. I cannot tell you a specified time saying, pray five minutes, read your Bible five minutes. I can't tell you that. There's no instruction for that. What I can do is still encourage you to always do it, to always keep in it until it is brought forth to your mind because it is so worth it. Again, everything in this world shall pass away, but the word of our Lord stands forever, just as our Lord stands forever. Can you also, like the psalmist, say that God is your rock? Have you done what Christ has called you to do and built your house upon the rock rather than the sand? Are you actively trusting in him to be your salvation? So that when God calls you through the deep waters or he calls you through the fiery trials, you know upon whom you stand and you trust him in that. Listen to verse five of how firm a foundation. What you notice with this, this is God speaking to the singer this time. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Christ will not forsake us. He will put us through periods of suffering, but he will never forsake us and he will never abandon us. Just a couple more things and we'll be done shortly. I want you to notice something about the author. Throughout everything, he does not ask God to take him out of his trials. Nor does he ask that his trials be taken away. Instead, what we see him doing is proclaiming his desire and his love for God. Again, going back to verse 1 and 2 of this passage, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? He is ultimately asking the Lord that his worship of the Lord be wholly restored. May that be the same thing with you today. The Lord tells us to make our requests known to him. So it is not bad that we ask the Lord to take away our suffering, to remove us from afflictions. But if we do that, we should more importantly be asking God to renew and strengthen our love for him throughout the trials. God may see fit for us to endure these until we pass from this earth into eternal glory. So ultimately, we may have to deal with this as long as we live. But it is worth it, for God is good and we praise him. I said earlier that I was originally going to preach on Psalms 43. The reason I chose 42 instead is because Psalm 42 and 43 are actually two parts of the same song. And in Psalm 43, the psalmist goes into much of the same questioning and assuring himself of God's goodness that he does here in Psalm 42. But both chapters end on a similar note. We do not see the author being delivered from their afflictions. We don't actually know what happens to them in the end. Ultimately, the author reminds themselves of God's goodness and praises him in the midst of suffering. Verse 5 of chapter 43, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. 
they suffer well. A previous pastor of mine once stated this, and if I had the original note, I'm sure I do somewhere, I would read it word for word, but since I don't have that, I will have to do my best to paraphrase or give you a general idea of what he says. But ultimately, he said this years ago, probably was in high school, maybe middle school, and it has always stuck with me. If we were to die and pass from this earth into glory and be able to look back on earth and everything that we had dealt with, we would immediately then turn to Christ and ask, that was it? That was all I had to go through? I would go through a thousand more lifetimes of that suffering just to be in your glory for one mere second. For you are worthy of it all. You are worth enduring everything for your name's sake. For your glory is more than all. Just as the author suffered well, I hope the same can be said for you throughout this time of Advent where we are Again, in a time recognizing where we are in the world and bringing to remembrance the hope of Christ coming back. But I hope you remember this throughout all time and not just this season. When the world sees you in the midst of hurt, do they see your love for Christ? Do they see you truly worshiping him, enjoying him and leaning on him? I hope so. I hope that as children of God, you're humble in your suffering. As you remember, there is a purpose behind it. As you remember, again, we worship a God who in his sovereignty allows us to go through periods of great suffering. Why? To produce in us a greater sanctification, a greater love for him, and a greater satisfaction and ultimate joy in him. For those of you who may not know of Christ or be of him, I pray that you will. Christ came to earth and humbled himself to the point of becoming a man and living on this earth sinlessly. He suffered just as we do, yet remained sinless. And he died on a cross for our sins, yet ultimately rose from the grave, claiming victory over it, showing that the Lord's promise of salvation had been fulfilled. He offers you himself, a water that will truly satisfy and sanctify. He doesn't promise you an easy life, as so many televangelists might try and tell you. Come to God, he'll give you money. He'll give you health and wealth. No. A true understanding of scripture, and we actually, if you read it, we'll see that we are called to suffer for his name. If you are of him, that is your ultimate fate here on earth. But again, your fate in heaven is far greater. He does promise you eternal life and joy. Will you receive this joy in life today? Will you repent of your sins and turn away from them, turning to the only one who can save you? making him Lord and Savior of your life? I pray that you will today. I end with this quote from Charles Spurgeon on suffering. I hope it, like this sermon to hopefully some extent, will encourage you to love Christ and cause you to recognize that you must suffer well. I, the preacher of this hour, beg to bear my witness that the worst days I have ever had turned out to be my best days. And when God has seemed most cruel to me, he has then been most kind. If there is anything in this world for which I would bless him more than anything else, it is for pain and affliction. I'm sure that in these things, the richest, tenderest love has been manifested to me. 
Our father's wagons rumble most heavily when they are bringing us the richest freight of the bullion of his grace. Love letters from heaven are often sent in black-edged envelopes. The cloud that is black with horror is big with mercy. Fear not the storm. It brings healing in its wings. And when Jesus is with you in the vessel, the tempest only hastens the ship to its desired haven.